Well, I was waiting for the hand signal, but that must have been it. <laughs> Some music or something. Can't keep it straight. You were close. Well, good morning. If we have not met, my name is Brett. Um, I'm a member at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and as a member of Emmanuel, I um, want to send our greetings and our thankfulness for you, Veritas Church. Uh, we pray for you regularly. Uh, we thank God for the work that he's doing here in this congregation, and as God has established you here in Placer County, we're thankful for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, this morning, we are going to be directing our attention to Psalm 121. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to that psalm, Psalm 121? And with our copies of God's Word open before us, let's look to the Lord asking for His help, the ministry of His Spirit, he would direct our attention and speak faithfully to us as he has promised. Would you join with me? Father, this morning we adore you and acknowledge you to be the creator of all things. We know for certainty that you are the one who has spoken the worlds into existence. Every star, every planet, every atom, Lord, all of it exists by your power. You are the one, Lord, who upholds all of your creation. You uphold all things by the word of your power. And Lord, we recognize your word is now open before us. We have heard it read this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would cause it to strengthen our faith. Lord, that you would renew our hope through it and our trust ultimately in you. And Lord, we ask this morning where faith in you does not yet exist, that you, by your power and your mercy, Lord, might speak it into being. Even for those who have heard your word often, for those who have even gathered in this place many times, Lord, if faith does not yet reside, Lord, would you, by your power, cause it to come forth? Lord, we recognize also without the work of your spirit, we are helpless And so, Father, we pray, send your spirit to not only illuminate the scriptures before us and to help us see the truth that is contained, but, Father, send your spirit to assure us that these things are true because of what you have accomplished and apply them, all that Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf, we pray. In his name, amen. Over the years, I've really come to appreciate uh, the changing of the seasons Uh, The transition from one calendar year into the next, Uh, there's just something for me personally about the winding down of one year and the anticipation of the next that provides just a natural time or a good time for for reflection, um, to survey the field. Let's take stock of where things are at. And it can be a helpful time to pause and consider, okay, what have we learned this year? To stop and to think about And thank the Lord, ultimately, for those areas of growth uh, that we can see in our lives and to point out those specific evidences of grace and seeing that, look what the Lord has done here, or look how he's preserved here, or look how he's answered this prayer there. And so in thinking back on the past 12 months that we are on that hinge of 
putting one year to bed and awakening to another here, as we think back on the past 12 months, I just want to ask you a question. If you had the ability to send yourself a message on the eve of 2020, what would you say to yourself? What sort of message would you give yourself if you had the ability to do so to prepare yourself for what was about to come? And I imagine we might think of uh, or be tempted to jump down something specific to governmental orders, executive orders, elections, pandemics. Maybe you'd be tempted to tell yourself what to invest in or to stock up in. <laughs> but there are certain timeless truths that transcend these shifting circumstances that really serve to hold us fast regardless of what comes our way. And lest we forget, we are just as ignorant of the circumstances in the year before us as we were in all of our innocence heading into 2020. And it's for this reason that I want to spend some time here in Psalm 121, because it is here in this chapter, in this psalm, that we find the sort of promises, uh, the very message that we need to, to tell ourselves uh, regardless of what lies ahead. Now you'll notice if you have your Bibles open there that there's a title to this psalm, and the title is A Psalm of Ascents. And as you gaze around at the preceding psalm and the the psalms after it, you'll notice that they all have a very same title. That is because this psalm is one of 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, that are grouped together as these psalms of ascent. And they are called that because they were often sung by the people of Israel as they journeyed from their hometown up to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts. And these songs, or psalms, contain, as you read through them, the sort of themes or the very experiences that you would want to be singing about as if you were journeying on a great journey to a very important destination. They also contain the sort of truths that you would want to catechize your children with. Sometimes, as I'm willing to guess, some of you do, as you go on long drives, you put in some music to help not just entertain, but to teach the songs that you would want to teach others as you're journeying towards Jerusalem as you make your pilgrimage there. Keeping that in mind, we would be do well to remember that in that day there were no roads like we know them today, but really just well-trodden paths that would go across the valleys, along rivers, or over steep mountain passes, and it would be very easy to imagine how this psalm might be sung by a hopeful but a very weary pilgrim can imagine how he would be traveling for days, his feet are sore, his muscles ache, and as if that journey isn't hard enough, the last few miles would actually be the hardest. Because as you make your way towards Jerusalem, you see that the elevation continues to rise, and then as you come around the corner, what is it that you see that awaits you? Not a nice, gentle downhill slope into Jerusalem, but an ascent. The last few miles are a hill climb. And as you've been traveling, how many of our days it has taken you, you suddenly come to the last part of your journey, and what do you see? Mountains, hills, 
And you can imagine traveling with your family and you say, look at those hills. How are we going to make it? How is it that we are going to actually finish? I am too tired. I'm too worn down. And then you read Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. So this psalm has been called the traveler's psalm because the imagery is thick with the sort of dangers and toils and snares that would mark out the Christian life. And oftentimes we too find ourselves crying out in the midst of our Christian pilgrimage, how am I going to make it? As we find common ground with the weary traveler here in the psalm, we are meant to be comforted by a repeated word. Did you notice it? There's a repeated phrase here, and it is that word, keeps. Six times, the psalmist testifies of the keeping watch of God. Look at your Bibles, you'll see it there in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and 8. To be kept is to be preserved. It's to be watched over. It's to be tended to. It's to be provided for. It is to be shepherded. And what we are dealing with here is the issue of true and abiding security. That's what's at stake. The plain truth of the matter is that every single person has something that they are trusting in to guard them or to preserve them or to keep them. Every single one of us. Whether you would call upon Christ as your shepherd or not. And it has to do really how you would finish the sentence. Maybe in passing you would say to somebody as you're talking back and forth about the coming year and you say, you know, all of that's true, but I know that we're going to be okay because... And how we fill that sentence in. For some, though they might not say it verbally in the back of their mind, that thing that enables them to finally turn their mind off and rest at night has to do with their savings account or their investments. This world could go absolutely bonkers, but I know that we have enough to get us through. Others, it's their security in their job. Maybe your job has been deemed essential. You can look around at others that are being laid off or cut back, but you say, hey, we're going to make it. My job's okay. Others look to a safe full of firearms or to where they live or where they don't live or where they plan to live. For some, the security peace of mind is just saying, I have a list. I have a spreadsheet with colors and charts, and if we stick to the plan, we're going to be okay. What do you tell yourself as the assurance that you are going to make it through another year? Psalm 121 would push us and would compel us to see that there is a greater source of trust. There is a security that can be known that will not be overrun. The big idea of this psalm is that the Christian pilgrim is held fast by the comfort of knowing that there they are kept by the very one who made the heavens and the earth. I am kept by the one who made 
the heavens and the earth. What would happen when you realize the one who spoke the worlds into existence by the word of his power watches over you? What would happen when you realize that the eternal one who is dependent upon no one and needs nothing becomes your watch guard? When your creator is your keeper, Psalm 121 would remind us that you will be kept in your weariness, you will be kept by the Lord himself, and you will be kept from all harm forever. And that is a sense, the course that we're going to plot this morning. When your creator is your keeper, you are kept in your weariness, you're kept by the Lord himself, and you will be kept from all harm. Look down at verse 3 where we see this first promise that you will be kept in your weariness. Psalmist says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When the psalmist speaks of his foot being moved, he's talking about stumbling or he's talking about staggering along. It's what happens when your, your muscles and your quads begin to tire. The road is uneven and all of a sudden you end up with a face full of dirt. And it happens so quickly, my foot stumbled. Now, if we were journeying together to Jerusalem, this would have been a daily concern for us as we wind our way through these trails over rocks and along these steep cliffs. And it's the sort of journey that spread over a number of days. It just, it wearies you. You are fatigued. And at some point, you have to not only stop and rest, you actually have to lay down and sleep. But not everyone can sleep. Because you are in an environment that is not safe. It is hostile. You are a sojourner. And so somebody has to stay awake. That's the job of the night watchman. And as we remember that we are sojourners, that we are pilgrims in this world, these images of, of stumbling feet and, and weary travelers, they, they take on fresh meaning for us. For many of us, just making our way through this past 12 months could be described as nothing else than wearying. I'm fatigued. I'm worn down. Maybe for some of you, as you went to school, you experienced a certain weariness just of what became known as remote learning, staring at a 12-inch Chromebook for hours on end, looking at pixelated versions of your classmates and teachers, and it's just wearying. Other times it was just this weariness of a household trying to be on top of each other as everybody's trying to do their thing in the same square footage under one roof, and it just wears you down. We can become weary from the uncertainty of everything. We're wearied as we need to wrestle through matters of conscience. We're wearied as we observe the division that happens and the disagreements that play out in social media or in our own homes. And of course, there's the weariness that comes from isolation and just being separated from our fellow church members. So what do we do at this point? Well, Psalm 121 calls us to embrace our creatureliness. By that I mean, we are to remember that he is the creator and we are the creature. 
we are to embrace our God-given limitations. We are going to get weary because we are not all sufficient. We are not all knowing. There are times when we are just going to have to say, I don't know. Now the problem is, for you and I, that we can often live as if we have to figure it all out. That the world's problems really do lie upon our shoulders. And it is up to me to figure out a way around this, through this, or over this. Because if I don't, it's all going to fall apart. Now it's interesting the scriptures speak to this exact mindset. We're close enough, you can just turn over to Psalm 127. There is a refusal to embrace the fact that we are the created ones, and the scriptures have a word for it. It's vanity. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain. It's empty. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to bed, late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. Consider what the scriptures tell us. God in his wonderful goodness has designed a daily rhythm into our lives to remind us that he is the creator and we are the creatures. He gives us sleep. He gives his beloved sleep. He gives you sleep to remind you that he is the one who holds all things together, not you. We will become run down. We will become wearied. We will come to the end of our rope. But he does not. So think about this. Each night when we lay our heads down upon our pillows, we are essentially having the opportunity to worship God by the very expression of what we are doing because we are saying, you are God, I'm not. I need to sleep right now, but you don't. Even though I need to close my eyes, you will watch over me. To not rest in our creatureliness is anxious toil. Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So as we stand on the precipice of a new year, you and I have no idea how it's going to unfold. But we can guarantee one thing. We will have days or even seasons where we are weary. But the promise of Psalm 121 is that even in those days, in those seasons, when your creator is your keeper, you will be kept even in your weariness. But secondly, when your creator is your keeper, it says in verse 5, you will be kept by the Lord himself. Look at the second stanza, verses 5 through 6. You will be kept by the Lord himself. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, if we were traveling together to Jerusalem, we would have a very real sense of the dangers of the uh, Middle Eastern sun, the terrors of the night. And oftentimes we'll hear when people get lost in 
the Grand Canyon or some national forest, that after they've been rescued, they're treated for exposure, right? That's just another way of saying that without the proper shade and shelter, you're in danger out there. This is not the mall. You can't just wander through there. You are exposed because the sun will strike you by day, bringing on dehydration, bringing on sunburn, windburn. But it doesn't get any easier at night. You may face hypothermia and all the animals that are hungry out looking for food. In other words, whether it is day or night, the pilgrim, the sojourner, is under constant danger. But notice really the emphasis of this stanza. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. This almost does not say the Lord will give you shade. The Lord will make sure that you will have the shade that you need. He says, no, the Lord is your shade, meaning he is so near to you that you sojourn in his shadow. He is your shade at your right hand. What a wonderful image. Because what this says is that nothing can touch your life or my life that does not first pass through the Lord who shades you. Does this not testify to the, the great arc of the storyline of Scripture that the Lord delights to be with his people? Think back to the very opening pages of our Bibles in the book of Genesis. We read that God creates Adam and Eve and they enjoy this unhindered fellowship, this perfect communion in this garden that he creates for them. But even after sin enters the world, they're driven out of the garden. God gives Moses instruction to build this tabernacle for the express purpose so that God may be in their midst. He still wants to be with his people. And he will find a way. He will give instruction so that his people may draw near to him so that he might be with them. And the story continues to unfold. God gives instructions to now build a temple. And again, we read this temple would be a place for his glory to dwell in the midst of his people. You keep turning the pages. You come to the New Testament. We even just read and sung this past Advent season. The Father sends the Son to the earth. The Word becomes flesh, and He dwelt among us. And as John says, we beheld His glory as He revealed the Father to us. The triune God seeks to be near His people. And as we keep turning the pages, what do we read? That Christ not only came, but He's coming again. And when He comes, He will establish the new heavens and the new earth, and what will be the great refrain when that finally comes to pass? We read it in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall dwell with them. He will be their God, and they shall be his people. So to say that the Lord is the shade on your right hand is to testify what is all over the pages of Scripture. Our God takes great pleasure in being near his people. If your creator is your keeper, you are kept by the Lord himself. You're not assigned some ambassador, some low-level proxy. You sojourn with the triune God. 
Brothers and sisters, union with Christ is this wonderful doctrine and has so many wonderful implications beyond just justification itself, as magnificent as that is. But it would also remind us that when we go with God, we truly go with the triune God. The Father loves you with an everlasting love and has set his electing love upon you and he sends the son to reconcile you to himself cleansing from your guilt so that you can call him abba father he sends the spirits in order to apply and affirm all that the son has accomplished brothers and sisters we go with god that is not just some trite saying that we might send one another out with we remind one another the lord is your keeper he's your shade at your right hand And so when we realize that we journey with the creator God, that the Lord himself is our keeper, we are enabled to say with all confidence, even if the earth gives way, even if the mountains crumble into the sea, even if its waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble, we will not fear. Why could the psalmist say that? Because the verse preceding that says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. You see, the people of God are kept at all times in every circumstance by Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who willed from eternity past to rescue a people for himself, vowing never to leave them or to forsake them, but to make a way to draw them near to himself. When your creator is your keeper, you're kept in your weariness. You're kept by the Lord himself. The last stanza would remind us that we're also kept from all harm forever. Look down at verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forever. Notice something with me. Notice how all-inclusive this stanza becomes. As it speaks to the totality and the eternality of God's keeping. Because he says it's, it's from all evil He says it's in all you do, whether you go out or you come in. And he says it's for all your days. This means that the Christian is guarded every day in every circumstance from here to eternity by the one who made the heavens and the earth. But let's be honest with ourselves for a brief moment. Do we really believe this? This can be one of those texts that seems to be like the odd puzzle piece that doesn't fit into the experience of life. Because surely you can think of days that were tinged with with evil. Surely you can think of days in your own life, maybe even this past year, that were marked out by harm. So is this verse really saying that we will not have days of trouble if God is our keeper? we zoom out and survey the wider message of scripture here we'll find some helpful answers we could go a number of places but for one 
We could think of the life of Joseph. Think of what we're told of Joseph's life. We know he was betrayed by his own brothers. He was abandoned for dead. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. Does that sound like harm to you? But what is repeated in the Genesis account? Alongside that same narrative. We can just look to chapter 39 to to find one answer where there's this repeated emphasis. The Lord was with Joseph. In Genesis 39 verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Then verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now the same principle comes into even greater focus through the the triumphal exclamations of Romans 8 where Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gets very specific, pressing it further, saying, shall tribulation Shall distress? What about persecution? About famine, nakedness, death? The point, brothers and sisters, is not that the Christian is is kept from that sort of harm, but the message of the scriptures is that the Christian is preserved through such harm for God's good purposes. Because what Paul says then next is probably the most important. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. It does not mean that the Christian is preserved, kept away from, isolated, removed, gets a hall pass against tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, but that in all these things, We're more than conquerors. In every manner of tribulation that you might face, in every distress, every moment of anxiety, in every ounce of persecution, should we know famine, and eventually even when you know death, for the Christian, they can say, in all these things, I'm a conqueror. The Christian pilgrim is held fast by this wonderful truth. God is for me. Who can be against me? What or who could ever separate me from the purposes revealed in the love of Christ for us? It's not that we will never have troubles. The point of Psalm 121 is that those troubles will never be our ultimate undoing, our destruction if our creator is our keeper. The promise of this psalm is not that you will never stub your toe or that no injury or illness or accident or distress will will ever come your way, but those things will not have the final say. That will not be the final period for the life of the Christian pilgrim. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you all your days, in all that you do. 
because you have an eternal guardian who watches over your soul. But let's press this a little bit further and make sure that we are clear. How could this possibly be true? Is this just positive thinking? Is this just some message to say it's, it's all going to work out? Because if that's all that it is, this is hopeless and worthless. Why is it that evil does not have the last word for the Christian pilgrim? Why is it that even in suffering and tribulation and persecution and sickness and famine and death, that the Christian sojourner is kept from harm? The answer is that because the greatest calamity that ever could come upon you is God's wrath against your sin. The greatest destruction that you and I could ever know, it's not cancer. It's not miscarriages or bankruptcy or abandonment. It's the righteous judgment of God coming down upon our heads eternity. The promise of the gospel is that God keeps his people from that. You will not know harm because the greatest harm that has ever come upon you has been dealt with by the triune God through his electing love, the sending of his Son, and the ministry of the Spirit. The Father turned his back on the Son. He did not shade him. He struck him. He did not keep him from evil. But he gave him over to death. The father abandoned the son so that his people might know his keeping power. Therefore, the Christian takes great comfort in knowing that any harm, any evil that does touch their life is ultimately been rendered harmless. For their heavenly Father is working all things together for good and even the painful experiences that others maliciously, willfully intended for evil, God intends for good. When your creator is your keeper, you have this full assurance that you have the full force of God's power and his wisdom and his goodness working for you, not against you. His power and his wisdom and his goodness and his mercy working for you, directing your steps, shading your path, and leading you onward. So what this psalm testifies to and promises to us this morning is something that, it, that it's extended to every person here that can hear my voice. You have no idea what awaits you this year. But regardless of the circumstances, you can be certain that you can be kept by the eternal God who is all-powerful, rich in mercy, directing your affairs with beautiful precision because he knows everything and deals with you in grace every day. So I ask you, do you have that sort of confidence? The announcement of the gospel declares that the undeserving and the unrighteous can know this sort of care. The promise of the scriptures is that if we would turn from our pride of our presumed self-sufficiency, if we would reject the idols of security and comfort that we heap up to try and replace the true and the living God, 
If we would repent of our sin, of our unbelief, and turn to Christ, that we will be met with open arms and glad acceptance. The great promise of Psalm 121 is wonderfully comforting and enables us to hold fast, even in the most difficult days. But these promises are only for those who have put their trust in Christ. This is not some just general statement of the big guy in heaven is going to watch over you this year. This is very specific. It says the Lord, Yahweh, those who belong to him, apart from your trust in Christ, let me be frank, you have no confidence coming into this year. You have no confidence other than the flimsy securities that you can cobble together for yourself. Apart from Christ, you are left to find some sense of security in your finances or your savings, your planning, your efforts, your wisdom, your health, your politics. And if this past year has shown us anything, is that all of that is a flimsy and fleeting source of hope. So why, I ask you, why would you risk one more day exposing yourself to such empty security when you could have the one who made the heavens and the earth stand watch over your life? That is what the scriptures extend to you this morning. Instead of your creator being your judge to condemn you, the gospel says your creator can become your keeper to guard you and preserve you forever. Now it is true, we are unable to reach back into time and somehow send ourselves a message, but we can do one thing. We can look ahead into this next year. We can preach this message to ourselves. You might talk to yourself. Your kids might make fun of you for talking to yourself as you bumble around your house. But do you preach to yourself? Do you preach to yourself? Do you say things to your soul? What sort of counsel do you bring to yourself in the inner monologue that you carry throughout the day? That's what I mean by... What are you preaching to yourself? Now, you can't go back and warn yourself of whatever you would say last year, but you can intentionally and directly preach to yourself as you step into this year. As weariness and dangers and trials come across our path, we can simply remind ourselves, okay, what is true here? Because what is true might not be what I'm feeling. It might not be what I see with my eyes. It might not be what I'm told by this person. What is actually true? And then we can preach to ourselves, okay, what, what do I know of God? What has he promised? What has he done? And then we say, okay, what sort of light does that shed upon my circumstance? Preach to yourself, brothers and sisters. Preach to yourselves the promises of Psalm 121. But perhaps the best way we can apply this psalm for this new year is to lovingly and faithfully point one another to the promises of God in the midst of whatever circumstances come our way this year. Membership in a local church reminds us that we do not exist unto ourselves. 
We are not isolated individuals who happen to be in the same geographical location at the same point in the week, but that we are the body of Christ. And we are bound to one another by his spirit. And he has placed you in this particular church for the spiritual good and nourishment and keeping of one another. Perhaps the best way we can apply this is after preaching to ourselves, we exhort one another. We point one another to the very promises that are here. How might our lives be enriched, brothers and sisters, if we intentionally took time to direct just our conversations instead of them just getting overrun by whatever the headline of the day was, but to be intentional in our conversations with one another, to drop notes in the mail, send a text message, the reminders of the wonderful sufficiency of God for all of life. How might that change your week? Yes, we will grow weary, but the Lord will keep us in the midst of our fatigue. Yes, we will face dangers, day and night perhaps, but the Lord himself will be the shade at our right hand. We may even know malice and harm, experiencing the pain of grief or certain sorrow, but even then the Lord will faithfully uphold and he'll preserve his people. How often do we need to hear this? How often do we need to remind ourselves of this very thing as we say we lift our eyes up to the coming year? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heavens and earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and for the assurance, for the confidence and the great promises that you have given to us there. And we say plainly and confess gladly that our times are in your hands. And so we ask, would you help us, Father, to rest confidently under your watch? Would you enable us to move through this year under your shade? And even if our days may be marked by trial or setbacks or great pain, Lord, would you preserve us and uphold us? Would you sustain us so that our lives might be lived unto your praise and that our lives might bear the kind of fruit that remains and that gives you glory? And we gladly confess that you are the creator and we are the creature. We are limited in our knowledge, in our capacities, in our energies and time. But Lord, we rejoice with you. There is no limitation. You endure forever. And so we commit ourselves to you. And we ask that you would bless us, that you would keep us, that you would cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us, that you would lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. For Christ's sake, amen. <laughs>